0: recovery elevator episode 28
1: and that's really when i realized look at the harm i am you know causing other people and you know it was a moment where i didn't want to live anymore like that but too afraid to die i had too much to live for and i finally just said i need help
0: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is paul thank you so much for joining us According to my Recovery Elevator Sobriety app on my phone, I have been sober for 11 months, two weeks, and six days. On today's podcast, we've got Holly. She's 27 years old and has been sober since October 15th, 2013. On today's podcast, we are going to discuss five ways that you can avoid relapse in recovery. I read this article on SoberNation.com. Speaking of, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.sobernation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. I've got some news for you. Believe it or not, if you're like myself, you've experienced it. Relapse is common in recovery. According to alcoholmd.com, approximately 90% of alcoholics experience at least one relapse in the four years following treatment. 90%. I actually don't need to read that figure with so much emotion. It doesn't surprise me. Getting sober is hard. Staying sober is equally as hard, if not harder. And again, we're taught to think that alcohol is just this normal drug. In fact, we're taught to believe it's not a drug. But let's talk about the other drugs and their relapse rates. Heroin, 78.2% relapse rate within four years. Cocaine, 61.9% relapse rate after four years. Meth, 52.2%. And marijuana, 43.1%. Yeah, that legal drug, alcohol, 90%. And again, I want to make this clear, Recovery Elevator is not a vendetta against alcohol. It's a wonderful thing, if you can drink normally. It's hard to accept that you might relapse. Some of the worst dreams I have ever had, in fact, we're just going to call them nightmares, are dreams where I'm drinking. They're not dreams where I'm reliving my glory days at Dolce Vita in Spain, slinging flammable shots to girls dancing on the bar, or partying with my best friends in high school or college after a football game. Their dreams where I relapse and they are terrifying because when you wake up, this wave of regret and guilt just slap you in the face. It's like, oh, sh-. in my mind, I go over how I'm going to tell people what I'm going to say in the podcast. The whole accountability thing. But just as that wave slaps you in the face, there's a piece of comfort when suddenly you realize that it was just a dream. And it's one of the largest sighs of relief I've ever felt. I can only imagine the feelings of anguish, guilt, and despair, all the above, if I do relapse. Like to say I won't, but it's an if. Acceptance is my answer. I understand that there is a chance I will relapse. However, This podcast is part of my program. It's not my program. It's part of my program. You guys listening, you are part of my program. This time around, and I say this time around, I was sober for nearly 2.5 years previously as a dry drunk. But this time around, I've got AA. I've got a podcast. I've got a myriad of books, resources, websites, doctors, professionals, friends, family. They all know what's going on. In fact, my local newspaper just interviewed me and did a story on Recovery Elevator, which is frightening in itself because there will be another wave of people who don't know my deepest, darkest secret. And that vulnerability is frightening. The term or concept relapse, although extremely ugly, should not be something that's swept under the rug while in recovery because you might jinx it. For example, you don't say the word shutout when your team's up 7-0 to zero against the Patriots in the fourth quarter with three minutes left, because guess what happens? Tom Brady throws a touchdown pass. If there's something with the chances of occurring at 90%, you probably should have a plan in place if that happens. Okay, but let's do our best to avoid the R word, relapse. Number one, lead yourself not into temptation. One of the most common reasons why people relapse is they think they can handle being in an environment where alcohol is present. Kind of like that one guy who went to Vegas for his fantasy football draft. That was me three weeks ago. Especially in early recovery and sobriety, we have this presumptuous confidence that we think we can tackle the world and be in any environment. I was okay for day one and half of day two, but the end of day two and day three, I was ready to go. Had I been there day four, five, six, seven, eight, I would have drank. Again, acceptance is the answer. I'm starting to come to grips with the fact that those situations for me maybe are not the best choices that I can make in sobriety. I can probably handle 99 out of 100 of those situations. There was a conditional word in there, probably. It's just not worth it. So I need to make a cognizant effort to simply avoid those situations but let's get real avoiding or eliminating those situations from your life sometimes aren't possible what you can do to mitigate the chances of relapse are don't attend as many of these types of functions if you are in early recovery i'm talking like one month to six months it's probably a good idea not to go to those things at all if you do feel like you can get in the game minus the drinking part You got to make sure you have plans in place like accountability. Everybody you're hanging out with has got to know that the new Paul does not drink. Well, he likes soda water with a splash of crayon and lime. While in Vegas, I discovered adding cranberry to soda water makes it more tolerable. If you have been sober for a while and you think you're comfortable enough to be in a situation like that, don't make an airplane your exit strategy. That's a fixed date and time that you've got to wait till your plane takes off. If it got really bad, I would have changed my flight, but sometimes that's not an option. You wanna be in a situation where you can get in your car and just peace out. The second key to avoiding relapse is support. You wanna create a team of support people that you hang out with. Support is reinforced with accountability. If nobody has any idea that you're an alcoholic or you're trying to quit drinking or you might have an issue with drinking, they're not gonna be able to walk up to you at a bar and slap that gin and tonic out of your hand. Everybody's got to know what's going on and sometimes not everyone will be okay with this but you need to be okay with simply exiting that relationship and moving on support needs to take many forms not just friends and family it could be a book it could be an audiobook, it could be a podcast it could be a counselor it could be a group of friends that you've met from a 12-step recovery program support could come from the groups you surround yourself on social media. For example, one of my strongest support groups is the Recovery Elevator Private Accountability Group. I'm not promoting it. It's just a fact. Same time on social media, you need to be cognizant of the stuff that's showing up on your newsfeed. If you've got friends that are always putting photos up of parties and drinking, just either unfriend them or unfollow them. And sometimes things show up that you just can't help. I remember one night in the tumultuous summer of 2014. It was right before 2 a.m., which is when the gas stations in Montana can no longer serve alcohol. I was looking at my news feed, and sure enough, up pops a Bud Light Lime sponsored ad by Budweiser. God, their targeting is good. I got up, jumped in my car, raced to the gas station, and guess what I bought? Bud Light Lime. And while I was checking out, I saw a special on box wine, so I bought 15. There is an option on Facebook also where it says, show me less content similar to this. I no longer see ads from alcohol companies on my newsfeed. A third way you can help avoid relapse is to create a healthy schedule. The most important part of this is sleep. If you have a lifestyle that allows you to get to bed and wake up at around the same time every day, that will be the most conducive to put your mind and your body in a good mental and physical state to achieve and maintain sobriety. Also, having a structured job, that whole nine to five thing, it's good for your sobriety. Well, good for your schedule, shall we say. Find things to put in your schedule that create a routine. This could be a gym. Most importantly, it's got to have tasks that address your alcoholism or your drinking problem. That would be a 12-step program, meeting with other alcoholics, whatever. Then you can schedule things like go to the gym, coffee with friends, whatever. But a healthy schedule is critical. The fourth thing you can do to better eliminate your chances of a relapse is to avoid complacency. Complacency is what happens after you've been sober for a long enough period of time. You say the words, I got this. We've all said it. Hell, I've said it hundreds of times. I got this. I've been sober for a year and a half. This is easy. Interesting thing, that's not you speaking. That's your addiction talking saying, I got this. Because the next thing that's going to come out of your addiction's mouth is going to be, We can have one drink, we can do this, we got this. Back to step three, stick to that schedule. We're all gonna get busy in life, and the thing to go away when we add more tasks to our busy lives and routines is gonna be that alcohol component. The work that we put in to staying sober that doesn't produce income, that doesn't create lasting memories, that's usually the first thing to go. So make sure you are still attending 12-step meetings, working with other alcoholics, stick to your routine. The fifth way to avoid a relapse, believe it or not, is actually to think about relapse. Saying something like, I've been sober for 11 months, two weeks, six days, I've got this. That would just be silly to say, because I know I have a 90% chance of relapse before I hit four years of sobriety. I have a 90% chance of relapsing. There is a 90% chance that one day you will listen to this podcast and I will say, recovery elevator episode 106. Yesterday. The Denver Broncos lost the Super Bowl. I drank, and I'm hungover as shit. Or, I finally got to see the Third Eye Blind reunion concert. It was so awesome that I just drank. But probably what's going to happen is the complacency thing. I'll say, Recovery Elevator, episode 307. I thought I had this thing in the bag. I've been sober for three years, six months, whatever. I drank last night, and I feel like shit. So me even talking about relapsing is part of my plan to not relapse. But I do have a plan in place if I do relapse. That would be accountability. I'm gonna get on this microphone and be like, recovery elevator, I drank last night. Hell, I'm hungover right now. Obviously, the thought of that just makes me cringe. The thought of going back to that lifestyle just makes me cringe. But I know it's a possibility. If you do relapse, you need to look at that as an opportunity for growth and learning. It's only truly a failure or anything in life if you don't learn from it. After you relapse, you might need to look at the common denominators. It could be a group of friends, it could be a lifestyle, could be staying up late, I don't know, but the answer is there. It probably won't be clear, but do your best to learn what caused you to relapse. So I hope you find those five tips to avoid relapse helpful. By no means do I claim to be a professional on this topic, but those five tips should help you avoid relapse. Now let's hear from Holly. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Holly to the podcast. Holly, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you, Paul?
0: I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Recovery Elevator, Holly is a Montana native. She's 27. And Holly, I'll let you answer the next question. How long have you been sober?
1: Let's see. I'll be coming up on two years on my sobriety date is October 15th of 2013.
0: Yeah, you've got that two years coming up soon. Oh, I know. How does that feel? Did you think you'd make it to two years?
1: No way. I mean, it's just crazy. The way I drank, I never thought that you know someone like me could make it that long without drinking, and I think it still surprises other people.
0: Well, that's a good segue. Usually, I ask interviewees a second question, tell me about your elevator, but... Tell me about how you used to drink, your habits, and oh. did you ever really try to moderate?
1: You know, I was a typical, right from 14, I was partier all through high school and doing all that and um, went to college and kept it up. And it was, I drank to get drunk. I I would see my dad and have a beer with dinner and I you know would just be like, what is the point? Why would I, you just have one beer? I was a blackout drinker. And towards the end of my drinking, I was just drinking so much, basically blacking out every night, waking up in the morning, you know, hungover and shaking and sometimes even starting drinking in the morning just to calm my nerves. And it was, it was bad and it was quite disturbing.
0: Yeah, Holly, but. if 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 maybe we could expand a little bit more on that. It sounds like that's kind of when your elevator hit its bottom. You were drinking every yeah. night. You're a blackout drinker. Yeah, just how bad mm-hmm. did it get? And when were you really ready to stop drinking?
1: The day I finally humbled myself to ask for help was um it was the summer of, you yeah, know, two thousand thirteen or a little after and I, you know, was doing this working at a gas station I'm an attorney and I had just passed the bar and I had just gotten sworn in as an attorney but then here I was working at a gas station because I couldn't you know get my shit together enough to get a job as an attorney and I felt so crappy I would just drink during work drink before work drink after. And I went to this casino on my break and um, had already been drinking a bunch of wine, had about three double vodka Red Bulls. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up at my mom's house the next morning, I guess I passed out in front of my work (laughs) and strangers had to somehow call my mom. And I woke up at home and I was supposed to leave in a few hours to go fly to California to be a um, A bridesmaid in one of my best friend's wedding, and you know I was so sick. I basically had a breakdown. I couldn't go. I just hold myself up in my room. Made my mom call these people and just tell them I was you know too sick to go. And that's really when I realized look at the harm I am you know causing other people. And you know it was a moment where I didn't want to live anymore like that, but too afraid to die. I had too much to live for, and I finally just said I need help.
0: Holly, you said humbled myself and asked for help. What was that like? Mm -hmm. It it, it sounds like you put your pride aside, which a lot of times pride kills us. Mm -hmm. And and, and in the direct meaning of that, what was it like when you finally asked for help?
1: It It felt good. It felt amazing. It was like I finally stopped fighting this battle of trying to you know, control my drinking and trying to make it work with the way I wanted to live. It was like I finally just asked and let go of, you know, all these visions I had in my head of trying to be, you know, normal drinker and, you know, but there was so little of me that held on. Like to this, like I wanted to ask for help and go to treatment because I just wanted to escape my reality at that moment because I had just done some really embarrassing things. So I just, you know, wanted an escape as well. So it was kind of like a twofold thing.
0: You mentioned the escape from reality. A lot of times when I was drinking, it was just for that, and it's really hard mm-hmm. knowing. That and especially for you, I can only imagine working at a gas station on the other side of your counter is just a wall of coolers, predominantly populated oh, with yeah. alcoholic beverages. How hard was that? Mm-hmm. You know, while you're struggling in the summer to look across that wall and just see an endless sea of alcoholic beverages, which would make you escape from reality instantly? That, that was really hard to do. And it sounds like you passed out in front of work one time, but that had to have been a challenge.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, you know, I think I only worked at the gas station about three months you know, maybe two months, because after that night of passing out in front of the gas station, I obviously didn't return to work. Working there and seeing that it was crazy, I would lie to my co and, and buy booze while on shift and say, oh, my mom's out back. I'm going to go give her this wine I just bought. And then I'd go out back and drink it and come back. And yeah, I don't know how I got away with it. I mean, I guess I didn't considering in the end I passed out in front of my work.
0: It hey, you, you, sounds like you had a good run, though. You got, got away with it oh, for a yeah. while. And Holly, the podcast that came out today, I interviewed a woman named Lisa, who strangely enough is also an attorney, but she says mm, your yeah. addiction lies to you in your own voice. Tell me about that. And I'm sure when you were purchasing the booze and lying to your coworker saying, my mom's out back... I'm. I've done the same. I've been in liquor stores and I've fabricated grandiose dinner parties and I'm asking for advice. Hey, you know what's what's a good vodka? I'm having a dinner party tonight and after the clerk mm-hmm. gives me their suggestions, I say, "Oh, thank you." And, and I still end up buying just the, a, a big plastic bottle of cheap vodka. But I'm justifying mm-hmm. it. I'm I'm lying, right? But it's yeah. my addiction talking to me. And tell me about that as your as your addiction ever spoken to you in your own voice and just directly lied to you, but you didn't know it at the time you were being lied to.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I never really thought that I was essentially lying to myself. And, uh, you know, it was my addiction lying to me. And it's terrifying. I mean, I would, deep in the back of my head, I knew my drinking was not right. But I always justified it by saying, you know, I'm going to deal with this, After, you know, when I started law school, that's when I was going to start drinking like a normal person. But then that didn't work. So I just said, well, after law school, when I get a real job, that's when I'll try and cut down. But for the meantime, just keep going. And then, yeah, going to the store, acting like I'm buying all of this alcohol and telling the clerk who I saw every day because I was always buying booze. Oh, yeah, I'm having people over tonight when I in reality I was just going back home to sit by myself and black out.
0: Holly, it sounds like you got sober in your mid-twenties. Now talk to me about that difficulty just in itself, because I feel like in our mid-twenties, I just put myself in that category, I'm 33, uh-huh. but we're both kind of young. I'm gonna try to put myself in your mm-hmm. boat for just a <laughs> second here, but it's tough getting sober young. Am I correct on that?
1: Yes, it is. You know, being born and raised in Bozeman, I know every nook and cranny of this town. And I have, you know, gotten drunk in so many of these parking lots and, like, go, go by so many places and houses and every, all the bars. And it's like, oh, I've been drunk there and there and there. And I know so many people. And I I never thought I would be able to be sober in this town. But upon my return from treatment, they had just drilled it into me, you know, to go to an AA meeting, go to an AA meeting. And I found a young people's and Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on the list my treatment counselor had given me. And I went to that and it was like, oh my God, there are people my age in recovery. And I had no idea. I really had no idea. And that was sort of my uh, saving grace
0: Holly, talk to me about what it was like when you first quit drinking in October of 2013. Walk me through the first 24 hours, first 72 hours, first month, and your first year.
1: All right. Well, it's actually kind of funny. My first day without a drink was the day before I left for treatment. And it was a few days after this whole, you know, missing my friend's wedding and passing out in front of work. And I had an interview at the public defender's office in Butte. And so I was in a car with my mom driving to Butte, you know, on my first day sober and got there did this interview and at the end they're like, Well yeah, now maybe you can go buy us a beer and I'm sitting there like, You have no idea. I'm about to go to treatment for alcohol tomorrow. And it was just it was just so weird. But, you know, needless to say I didn't get that job. don't think I would have wanted to take that job either. If I wanted to stay sober. But yeah, so that was the first day. Then the next day it was, I went to the treatment at um, it was Rocky Mountain Treatment Center in Great Falls. And I really hadn't wanted to go there because their whole website was like based on aa 12 sets. And I was like, oh, those don't work because I had kind of half-assedly tried that before and I just didn't think it worked. And you know, but it was the only one that accepted my insurance, so I went there and it was terrifying. I had no idea what to expect i was that first seventy two hours it was just I was just watching my body go through these motions. It was just so strange to be present, and I was just shy and meek and so much anxiety. but then you know after about the first week, it was strange. it was like suddenly I was laughing all the time like and, these people i met there they were so funny and but then i was crying all the time and it was really just i was feeling all these emotions that i had bottled up for years with alcohol and it was it was insane to, like all at once it was like this flood of emotions and you know i remember talking to my counselor there and she was like don't worry this will you know pass and so eventually it's evened out that was definitely i remember that very much and thinking that was very strange. Yeah, first 30 days I did in treatments, which the way I drank and I think and the type of triggers I had, I think I needed to be removed from reality just so I could be basically forced sober for 30 days. Then I got out and I just really jumped into AA and it was sort of my first time practicing my social skills, which, you know, because I was one of those who... In order to talk to other people, I had to be drunk. And so I was just kind of out there trying to feel myself out and do stuff with other people. And eventually I got more comfortable with being social and stuff like that. But there was also a lot of times kind of an impending sense of doom or just this overwhelmed feeling of like, oh, my God. There's so many things I have to do right now, and you know it was very strange. And then maybe within the first year, it it kept getting better. Like each month, it got a little better. I think I remember the cravings for alcohol stopped maybe around five months or six months. I remember because the last one I remember having was it was summertime, and I was upstairs in my room, and I could I looked outside, and I saw my neighbors just sitting in the sun, drinking beer. And I just got pissed and like jealous. Like, why can't I do that? That's not fair. But in my head, I just knew that because I can't do that. If I tried to do that, you would find me who knows where the next day. Like I couldn't just go outside and have a beer and come back in. But you know, after the first year, it was, I was pretty much stable and happy and enjoying life in a way I never thought I could. Which is amazing. I always used to hear in a people would say like they're grateful alcoholics, and I'd just be like, oh, that's a bunch of crap. But now I understand that because the way I live now without alcohol, it's so much better. And you know, I never would have gotten to this place had I not been an alcoholic. So it's pretty cool. And yeah, it just keeps getting better. And I don't even think about drinking anymore. And you know, I can be around people who are drinking, and it just kind of like whatever. But in early sobriety, that was really hard for me. I couldn't be around people drinking because I would get jealous and, you know, sort of resentful. But yeah, that's kind of how it went for me.
0: Holly, you had some value bombs in there and I wrote down some quotes. I'm just going to read them back to you. Feeling Mm -hmm. all the emotions I had bottled up for years. It was like a sense Mm -hmm. of doom. And then you said each month it got a little better. And then the days just keep getting better and you don't even think about drinking anymore. So tell me about the feeling of all the emotions that you had bottled up for years because I experienced the same thing. Listeners, when Mm. you stop drinking, all those emotions that the drink put away, they're going to show up on their own terms. They might not show up the day you stop drinking, but eventually all those emotions that you suppressed with drinking, they will be back. So what was it like facing all those emotions sober?
1: It was, it was really hard because I would have them. And then what was I supposed to do with them? My normal response would be, yeah, go buy a handle of vodka and drown it all out. And the thing I learned, though, is my default state of being, my emotions doesn't have to be depressed or negative. But, you know, those emotions of being depressed and negative and just feeling like crap, you just have to get through them. I learned that an emotion, it doesn't define me. An emotion is not me. I just have to like ride the wave of the feeling and eventually it'll pass. Like pain, I've had some painful experiences since I've been sober and I learned that the quickest way for that pain to go away is just to full-on feel it and, you know, instead of bottle it up or use something to suppress it.
0: You mentioned earlier, you heard somebody say they're a grateful alcoholic. The first time I heard that in in a meeting, I was like, well, car mm-hmm. keys in hand. I'm going to pull up the truck and, and get the hell out of here. Yep. <laughs> but it's kind of like the Field of Dreams movie with Kevin Costner is once you finally mm-hmm. see the field and see the players, I might be mm-hmm. on that team right now as well, Holly, where I'm a grateful alcoholic. And can you try to explain that a little more of how you are a grateful alcoholic.
1: Yes. If I had never been an alcoholic, I never would have gone through such struggle and such just turmoil and depression, self-hatred, you know, and come to a point where I needed to change. And in that change, I've sought out so many different tools that have just made me a better person because I would have never, for example, worked the steps of AA if I had been an alcoholic. And but by working those steps, it's opened my eyes to just a better way to live. And, you know, I've sought out other like meditation and mindfulness books, books about mindfulness that I read. And it's like, I would have never done that if I hadn't been an alcoholic. So I think, you know, I'm really grateful that I had something that forced me to really change myself to just be a better person and teach me how to enjoy life.
0: Holly, I've heard the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That holds true for a lot of things minus polio. Mm -hmm. But with the whole alcoholism thing, if we make it through to the other side, which I feel you're on the other side, I've got a year coming up soon on September 7th. I'm on Mm -hmm. the other side. Awesome. Thank you for that. Us alcoholics, after we've made it here, we're extremely resilient. We know how to fight and we've made change we can recognize our character defects and make change. And and talk to me about how no change will happen unless the pain points are painful enough.
1: Yeah, you know, if it wasn't painful, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to change. It's definitely like when I see things that I don't like now, I know I can change. It's hard not to just be like, oh, yeah, I have this much sobriety. I'm good. I have to constantly stay humble and be willing to do certain things and to remain teachable. Because if I get too cocky and full of myself and sure of my sobriety, then I'm going to end right back up where I started. I have to you know, remember the past and remember how far I've come and just keep moving forward but still be careful of you know where i step because i'm still a very flawed human being and if i'm not careful my you know character defects will take over my life.
0: Holly, you kind of touched up on this right there, but what is your plan moving forward to rocket that almost 2 years of sobriety into 4 years to 8 to a lifetime of sobriety?
1: You know, i think for me it's just really remain humble and keep doing these things I'm doing like for me AA has been my my lifesaver so that if that's a program I'm always going to have to remain close to and I do a lot of volunteer work through it I think one of the coolest things I've been doing is I go to the jail like three times a week because I have three sponsees in the jail and that's just such a cool thing for me to do and it really makes me just so grateful to be where i am today so just doing things like that and just staying close to alcoholics anonymous is probably you know my main goal to make sure i don't start off on a path to relapse
0: holly we have reached the rapid fire round if you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds that'd be great are you ready sure all right holly here we go number one what was your worst memory from drinking
1: well, this is really embarrassing, and I always thought I would take this to the grave, but I was, like, the last two years of my drinking, I was a bedwetter, like, every single night. It was just, oh, my God, it was so embarrassing, and I just r- remember this memory of being in CVS Pharmacy in San Diego, California, which where I was living at the time, and buying, like, a handle of vodka and a bag of adult diapers, cause I was gonna go home and just get put on one of those and just get blackout drunk. And it just, God, there was so much shame, the most intense shame I've ever had associated with that. So I think that's probably the worst thing I can think of.
0: Holly, thanks for sharing. I had a huge <laughs> smile on my face right there. It sounds like you also <laughs> understand the humble part of things and you need to eat your pride, but you know, buying, yeah, buying a handle of vodka, and diapers at the same time is it, that's, <laughs> and, and you're also eating humble pie and, mm-hmm. and holly i can't guarantee this no i i won't do this but usually i do like a like an eight minute snippet like a like an intro but but i was thinking about uh-huh. doing like and i bought a handle of vodka and diapers <laughs> and then welcome right. to recovery elevator i won't do that though it's but great. but thank you for your honesty seriously that's what people <laughs> oh, want to sure, hear yeah. because if you're an alcoholic and you're saying i've never wet the bed you're lying <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Next question, what's your favorite resource in recovery?
1: As I kind of mentioned earlier, it's Alcoholics Anonymous, and the friends I've met there, like I have some other women who are my age that I've met, if, you know, I'm feeling bad or like when they early sobriety when I wanted to drink, I could just call one of them and vent. And I think it's so important to have people you can turn to who understand what you've been through and what you're going through.
0: Holly, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: For me, what really stuck with me this through early sobriety was the whole one day at a time thing because I had so much fear of like, God, I'm so young. Am I really going to be sober now for the rest of my life? And it was like, well, this is working right now. I'm, I'm sober right now. I'm just going to be sober for today. And then like in those times of intense cravings, I would just be like, well, I'm not going to act on it today. But tomorrow, there's always tomorrow, and I can go buy as much booze as I want. And then, you know, tomorrow would come, and I'd kind of just do the same thing. And eventually, I pieced together a couple months. And that was just so important for me at the beginning.
0: Holly, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery?
1: I would just say don't give up because it is possible and it only gets better the more days you piece together the better it gets i promise it's just that initial period it can suck really really bad but once you're kind of over that hump like it's just amazing how life can be so just yeah don't give up and don't let a relapse you know deter you if you relapse you know it might be a step backward but just get right back on the horse and keep keep doing it because it is worth it and it is possible
0: holly thank you so much for joining us fantastic stuff
1: (laughs) thank you thanks for having me
0: i think in my first second or third podcast i talk about only five percent who quit drinking make it to 90 days and then five percent of those people make it to two years i've made the five percent that make it to 90 days i'm almost halfway to making it to two years So I've already defied those odds. So another 10% out of four years, bring the odds on. It's one day at a time, but I'm gonna do my best to defy the odds. Earlier in the podcast, I call relapse the R word. I wanted to come up with some nifty phrase, the R word, to talk about relapse without saying the word relapse, but that's silly. It's stupid. Relapse is a common occurrence. It's part of a lot of people's recovery. It has been part of my recovery. And I've learned from every relapse that I've had. Recovery elevator, you took the elevator down. You gotta take the steps back up. You.